0: Welcome to Optimal Health for Busy Entrepreneurs, the podcast for busy and high-performing entrepreneurs and leaders who are looking to create more energy and optimize their health while upgrading their brain and personal performance with precision. I am your host, Julian Hayes II. I've been involved with health and performance for over a decade. This podcast was created for the high performer who is unapologetically ambitious, the one who moves at a fast pace and operates with an edge, the one who wants to become superhuman. Nothing here is fluff, gimmicky or feel good. I have little to no interest in simply helping you improve your life. I want to help transform it. By listening to this podcast, expect to have a body that feels just as good as it looks. Expect to possess a swagger and style that gives off an infectious vibe. Expect to command the stage or any boardroom you walk into with your executive presence. And lastly, expect to become your most enhanced self so you can live a limitless life. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Optimal Health for Busy Entrepreneurs. I am your host, Julian Hayes II, and today we're talking about a very important concept to becoming superhuman that most people overlooked, and it is building our wealth because being superhuman is not free, and it's also part of living the good life. And so I have two experts on today, so this is a first for this podcast. So I'm curious to see how this goes. So I am joined by Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner of the money advantage team. And how are you both doing today?
1: Awesome. It is really a pleasure to be on the show with you today.
2: Thank you. No, it's, this is really, this is a really good uh, topic. Obviously we're biased Julian, but, um, <laughs> what people, people don't realize the, um, the health consequences of financial stress, uh, has on their lives. And, um, I don't have the exact numbers, but I do know the actuaries. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, life insurance. We can talk about any financial topic you want, but talk a little bit about life insurance. The actuaries actually do take um, the financial stress of a person's life into consideration when they do projections of how long they're going to live. It's a really interesting. They take into consideration credit score. They take into consideration um and the credit score you can always you know a lower credit score means you've had a lot of stress in your life um but it's 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 actually factored in and they also take into consideration uh how much they give you no matter what your your assets are uh what your income is and how and also how liquid your assets are because if your assets aren't very liquid it puts a it it, it, can, it has the potential of putting stress into your life if you do need some cash for cash flow at that particular time so it's very interesting that actuaries are actually looking at these things when they're when they're trying to determine how long a person will actually live
0: Mm -hmm. Mm, so it actually pays to be healthy it
2: absolutely absolutely. pays to be healthy
0: yeah so that's something that we, we we don't really hear too much So let's, before we dive into that more, I want to get a little bit of each of your backstories and how'd you get involved in this world? So let's, let's be gentlemen and start with ladies first. So Rachel.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So this is a really, really interesting concept. And, uh, so back I was homeschooled growing up and I love owning that fact now I hated owning that fact when I was younger but it really taught me to think a little differently and I think it, my education started a little different path when in 8th grade my parents said hey we're learning about Robert Kiyosaki we dove into getting the cash flow game and they said hey why don't you read this this book rich dad poor dad and then I ended up reading the cash flow quadrant and I was young at the time and At the same time, it was very insightful to me and very inspiring to realize that there was a different way of thinking about money than what I was accustomed to. And thankfully, my parents were wise enough to say, hey, we don't know everything and there is more out there to life and finance than what we can teach you. So please start gaining your education from something else and and pursuing that. And so it was really interesting that just kind of planted the seed that I wanted to move from being an a employee or self-employed person over to what Kiyosaki talks about, the right side of the quadrant, being business owner and um, investor, meaning you're not trading time for money, you are making money work for you. And so I wanted to be in a position of owning business and figuring out what that meant. So, fast forward, I'm dating my husband. We're talking, hey, maybe we could start a subway. Maybe we could uh, own a cleaning company. We're just trying to think of anything. What can we do that's gonna be a business? And we really didn't know where we were gonna land, but we ended up starting a health insurance agency right at the time that my first daughter was born, about nine years ago. And that got our feet wet in this idea of saying, how do we figure out how to serve people and solve their problems and needs? Well, we're working with health insurance during. Um, ACA and all the changes that are happening. What was really interesting is I was mostly talking to business owners because they were the ones who couldn't get their group health insurance from their big employer. They were having to either provide it to their own employees or to themselves. And that started this conversation where I was talking to them more about not just their health insurance needs, but their general financial needs. And they were saying, hey, I need to understand my my cash flows, I need to understand my QuickBooks, I need to understand what's going on with my money. And so the conversation from health insurance kind of spanned over towards financial services and life insurance. We had a lot of pivots during our business, but what really started happening is we realized there's a much greater need for people to store cash and be in a position of cash flow and liquidity. Now, meanwhile, we're learning this lesson for ourselves because my husband and I had said, hey, we don't want to follow the status quo. We don't just want to put money into a 401k at a job or into mutual funds or into an IRA. We really wanted to say, what can we do that is taking ownership? Not just building a business, but really being in financial control. And so that led over to us saying, what can we personally do in our financial life? Well, at the time we said, let's put all of our money into gold and silver. That's a great idea, right? Well, it was because for a while the price was going up and we're putting our cash, which at the time we are putting a lot of cash away, not spending it, which that was a good money habit, but we're putting it into this um, speculative asset where we thought we're just going to hold this for the next 50 years and it's just going to be a store of value for us. We hadn't seen we're going to start a business. We're going to need capital to put into the business and that value of having liquid cash that we can use in our life, in our emergency needs and for opportunities just hadn't even occurred to us. So meanwhile, I quit my job. We're starting our business. We have a new baby. We have all these extra expenses. My husband gets furloughed for a little bit. So we have like the income goes down and down and down some more. And at the same exact moment, the value of our gold and silver cut in half. Meanwhile, we need access to cash. Not a good situation to be in. Super stressful. Talk about financial stress. And so we started learning from that saying we need liquid capital. We need to be able to access our money and we need it to not drop in value. No matter how good an asset is, if you're speculating on what you think is going to happen in the future, you're not in control. So fast forward, we're, we're working in life insurance now. We're we're saying, hey, we, oh, sorry, I, I skipped a part. So we said, we need to figure out what this life insurance piece is all about because we'd heard that it could be something really powerful for storing cash. So we're learning about this. We in, We implement a policy for ourselves. We start helping other people with this concept. And then we met Bruce and his team and we said, this is a really powerful concept. How can we continue to educate people more. And that was when the birth of the money advantage started. And we've been just continuing to educate people about how to keep and control their money. So Bruce, obviously that has nothing to do with your backstory leading up to when we met each other, but it's just been really interesting that we've been able to develop so much together since that point. So it's probably necessary now for Bruce to be able to share your story, because that's a really key part of why we are able to provide this value.
2: Yeah, and Julian, unfortunately, you know, I have a couple decades on Rachel, so I have a longer story than that, too. <laughs> uh, I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version. You know, I was born in 1963, and um, that was actually uh, before the government got involved with any kind of um, investment in- instruments because of 401k, I'm sorry, the uh, the IRA wasn't developed until like 1973 and the 401k wasn't developed until 1979. Um, really, we only had social security and we didn't even have um, Medicare yet. Um, now, I don't remember that as a young child, but it did influence the, the people that had influence on me. It did influence them. And so as you're growing up, that influence came towards me. So, you know, the idea that you would, you would actually put money in the stock market or you would put money tax deferred to get get it, you know, later on. That what that wasn't anybody's psyche, you know. What you you actually did is you stored money in a bank and you stored money in cash valued life insurance. It amazes me to this day that you know so many people are are questioning that. They're like, oh, that is a silly thing to do. What's well, been around for 250 years. I mean, things that are silly to do don't don't survive that long. What they're really trying to say is uh, they're trying to say you know. It, it doesn't fit into my narrative, so it must be bad. And so as I grew up and grew up and grew up, my father actually was an entrepreneur. He had a, he had a shell service station. We don't see many shell service stations anymore, uh, but it was a full service station. You know, it wasn't like these convenient um, uh, service stations now, like Quick Trip or Wawa, I think you have on the East Coast, and these different things on the run mobile. You know, it was actually it only had two tank uh, uh, pumps, you came in and it had bays and people would come in to get their cars worked on they they'd get the gas and then they they'd go in and I I just grew up in this I had my little box where I would actually at 10 years old I'd clean the clean the windshields I checked I checked your tires I would do all this kind of thing so I was actually helping my dad with his business and then the and then the Iraqi oil or excuse me the Iran oil cra- uh, crisis came you I don't even know if you guys know about this but we had an embargo on that and it just shut down the United States because we were dependent on oil from the from Iran, and it was a really really tough time in the seventies. Not only were we just coming out of the Vietnam War, um, I tell people right now, uh, you know, we we revere the military, but back there, so back then, socially, uh, a a veteran that was actually drafted was actually um, criticized. For actually going to the Vietnam War, they were physically abused. They were spit on. I mean, it was it was not this glorified thing. And they didn't even sign up. They had to. Act, they actually got drafted. It, the '70s then were were an absolutely abysmal time to actually live and grow up because Nixon took us off the gold standard, and we had tremendous um, inflation during that time period. And these were my influential years. And so I then started another business and this is this, I'm going to get PETA on me. I've, I've said this in another uh, podcast, but I actually had a um, fur trapping business. So I would actually trap uh, muskrat and mink um, and we would sell them. And heck in, this, in the seventies, I could get $75 for a, for a raccoon pelt. And uh, you see, once again, you're not old enough, but in the seventies, the nba was just coming into the presence and all those nba players were in these full length full length um, fur coats and it was it was really cool to have it and so it was really great so i would get up you know early in the morning like five o'clock go check my traps and then then go to school and then go work afterwards and it just built this idea of what um what entrepreneurship was and then i went off to college. And um, I actually got an education uh, degree on biology and I taught biology for 17 years. And, but during that time period, I actually got into the insurance business uh, part-time. That's one of the things we try to teach people is, you know, yes, it's great to fuel the entrepreneurial spirit, but don't cut your nose off to spite your face. Don't just jump completely in, especially if you've never, if you've never done it before, because it's, you know, and, and there are people out there on the internet that are saying, you got to, if you have a passion, you just got to go for it. <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think that only a few of those people actually survive. So like, why don't you put your toe in the water and understand how it works before you just go for it. And that's what I did. And um, then uh, there's a lot of processes in there and, and building up my business and actually then getting out of education. And then, Yes, Rachel and Lucas and I met through something we called the Freedom Advisor Experience because we thought the financial service industry in the United States was was really broken and it was an individualistic thing. And We were trying to teach other people that, hey, let's do this in a cooperative manner. You know, let's cooperate in all these things because people have a silo, they have their taxes, they have their insurance, they have their financial planning, they have their banking needs, they have their mortgage needs, they have their property and casualty needs, and none of that's coordinated. Well, what's interesting is the the ultra wealthy people in the United States, and, and, fra- and frankly, across the world, they do coordinate everything. So as we say in our podcast, success leaves clues, so models the successful few, not the crowd. So we were trying to teach that concept to everybody. And that's how we met Rachel and Lucas. And I, you know, we we kept the conversation going. One day, Lucas and Rachel call and say, hey, we want to do a podcast and actually teach this. Over the internet, and just which like, I wanted
1: to do, except I was too nervous to jump in with both feet to the podcast. So Lucas, on a camping trip, calls up Bruce. Hey, will you do a podcast with my wife? <laughs>
2: of yeah, course, then. Yeah, what's, what's really, <laughs> what's really odd, uh, Julian, when you think about it, and, and this is a hundred percent true. Uh, people, co- people compliment Rachel, and I'm sure you feel like this too, because I know you've looked at some of our stuff. Rachel is really, really good communicator on video and on her writing and so on and so forth. She didn't, like four years ago, she didn't think she was. Oh, wow. No, 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 she, no, she (laughs) was, she was hesitant on everything. Now she doesn't hesitate at all. And this is what we were talking about uh, earlier is about if an entrepreneur, you, you know, put your foot in the, in the, in the water, your toe in the water, gradually go in there, surround yourself with good mentors, um, whether it's myself or, or, or uh, all the people that uh, Rachel has surrounded herself and getting their opinion. And that's where we are today. And what Rachel and I try to do in our education and communication is not push an agenda. We try to actually teach people both sides of, of the fence. Now, we get, we get criticized on that on occasion because we don't take a strong enough stand. But and then we also have some people that, because they're close-minded, think we take too strong of a stand on a, on an issue, you know. So you 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 can't please everybody. I but can relate we, to that. Yeah, and, but we believe what we believe, and that is we we have a mission, and our mission adds value, and our, and if our mission adds value, we will get compensated for it, because that's how the free market works. You only get compensated if. If you are adding value to somebody's life and they're willing to pay you for that, that value, so that that is what we try to do, and that's the backstory of both uh, her and I, and we love sharing it because a lot of people look at things and they see the kind of the well, I don't think we have the final thing because we're always working on things, but they see it and they think, oh, um, that's going to be really too difficult to do. I don't want to get involved in that. I mean, you. You're, I want to applaud you for, you know, this podcast. I mean, a lot of people talk about doing it all the time, but they never do it. So that's kind of the, unfortunately, that was the Reader's Digest version of, of, of
0: my life.
1: We like to talk. <laughs>
0: that's, that's good. That's good. That's good. It makes my job much easier. But um, a few things. So I can relate to, I thought about a podcast for a long time, and I, but I was so comfortable just writing. Mm. And then I, and so it took me maybe eight or so months to finally start recording and then start reaching out to people. And secondly, um, speaking on fur coats and meat coats, um, this is kind of a sad story, but it's funny as well. So me and my father were going to clean out my grandfather's uh, house after he passed away. And I opened the closet and I'm like, dad, what is this? And he's like, oh, these are fur coats and mink coats. And so there's a bunch of them, but it didn't look like they did in the pictures. Cause I, I think they, I think you got to have upkeep on them or something. Sure. Mm. Yeah. And so I was, I was like, can we sell this still? And my dad was like, no, no. Mm. And so, but that was my first introduction to those coats. I was like, oh, yeah. these, these outrageous coats. Cause yeah. I, I only seen these in the movies. And I was like, Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> that's awesome.
0: So, yeah. um, and was I do a
2: definition of cool. It was a definition of cool back then.
1: Uh, yeah. That's awesome.
0: A lot of trends do make a comeback, so is there a possibility that this could come back?
2: Only oh, yeah. artificially, I believe.
1: <laughs> Bruce, I think it's time for you to wear one of these on our show. Just kidding.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll try can, to wear one.
1: There we go. We can try to be <laughs> trendsetters in this way.
0: <laughs> but um, but yeah, so let's, let's dive into this a little bit. So I guess we should start with, I guess one thing, you said this has been around 250 years. And I guess... Has it only been around 250 years that the wealthy know because.
2: No, actually, no. Okay. So the concept of what what we're, we're talking about is a, a mutual company and the concept of a mutual company would go back 250 years where a village would get together and somebody would die in the village and the family, you know, they're, they're trying to actually take care of them. Well, they used to do it like in a, what I would call an ad hoc way. Well, Hey, let's see what they need. Bring them some food. Bring them some clothing. You know, so on and so forth. But then the the more sophisticated ones got together and say, why don't we all just contribute it, contribute a little bit of our finances, and let's pull this together. And then when this tragedy happens in our community, our village, let's then have hand this money, our portion of this money, to this family who lost a provider, usually the male back then, obviously, and. Um, But then, you know, like Penn Mutuals, one of the companies we use, They, you know, I think they've been around for 157 years.
1: Yeah, Yeah, like 170 or something. Or
2: 172. Yeah, I got all, we we actually represent represent a bunch of these companies. I don't have them all memorized, but, uh, you know, it's well over where they were actually uh, incorporated uh, as a business uh, over 150 years ago. But then, Julian, like I was mentioning, it was the way that people stored money. Um, up until all of a sudden the government, and you're gonna I'm gonna have some biases against the government when we talk about this, the government had a better way of doing things. And they said, let's defer, let's contribute to this for your retirement, let's defer these taxes into the future. And that was like nineteen seventy-three. Well, then in nineteen ninety one or excuse me, nineteen ninety-nine came all about and they said, Oh, you know that that way you were deferring taxes in the future? We got a better way now let's do a Roth IRA. You can pay the taxes now and you can let it grow tax-free. Well, Nelson Nash used to say, well, wait a minute, if that was the best way to do it and now there's a better way to do it, but you still keep the old way, don't you feel a little manipulated? Because they don't even know what the right way is. They're just trying to um, uh, change a person's mindset for their betterment because now they need more tax dollars now. So they're going to say, Oh, don't defer your taxes into the future. Give it to us now, and we'll let it uh, grow. Uh, the The movie we're in the we're in the holidays. The movie A Wonderful Life. Um, many of the younger people don't watch that movie any, anymore. But it was about a bank um, that was collapsing, and the owner of the bank was trying to um, make everybody whole, and he was going to do it personally. He he actually holds up his life insurance policy and says, I have some money here. And and he actually helps the people in the community through his life insurance because you cannot uh, multiply dollars in a life insurance contract, but you can multiply dollars in a bank. Banks are only required to hold 10% of the money that they have lent out uh, in their coffers. I, I I tell your listeners this someday. Um, go in a bank someday and say, I want $5,000 of cash. This won't literally happen, but it seems like it happens. All of a sudden it, people will be scurrying around. You, you, you're going to feel like there's red lights going off. Like, whoo, 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 where, where are we going to get this cash? Cause they don't have it in the, in the vault, that big door that they have there. You're, you're probably not going to be able to get $5,000 of your cash out because they don't really have that in there because they have a lot more money lent out than they actually have in the bank. The Khan Academy on the on YouTube uh, does a really good job of explaining this banking process. Well, we try to bring that banking process, which we think is actually hurting the United States by inflating the money supply. And by the way, our congressmen are doing it again as they do this COVID relief bill. Um, by actually taking the banking process into the U and I level, so instead of inflating the money supply, where you're actually leveraging yourself, why don't you save first before you buy, and then replenish that capital with good money habits? The yes. last thing I'd like to say about this before we go, we go on, and, and Rachel's got she does a lot better job of explaining this. Than no, Bruce, I you're do. doing just fine. <laughs> But here's the why, why the United States or any country is going to get in trouble. Think about this. You make, let's just say you make $50,000 a year, but you have $10,000 on credit cards. And that $10,000 a credit card, um, you're paying 20% annual interest rate on it. So that's $2,000. So instead of actually spending, um, that additional $2,000 out into the economy. Where are you, what are you doing? You're actually It's actually going to the financial institution. So when these people always say, well we have to actually get people to spend and we have to leverage, that's great for a short period of time. But then when all that additional revenue has to go back to actually paying the interest, then all of a sudden the, the concepts of free market and the consumption economy comes crashing down. Because now the, the normal money we would be spending to actually uh, lift up the economy is going towards the interest. It's no different. The, The government economy is no different than our economy, except for the fact that they have decided that it is okay to just inflate the money supply. Inflating the money supply is okay until it's not okay. And I know that's a real simple concept, but until someday somebody says, I don't trust the United States bond anymore. Because I have an IOU right here, a 30 year treasury that says they will pay me back in 30 years. I don't trust them anymore. So I'm not buying any of those bonds anymore. So what what does a person have to do to get to buy that bond? What does the treasury have to do? They have to raise interest rates. And free market says, oh, that's that's not high enough. I still don't trust you. Okay, we're gonna have to raise it again. That's not high enough. I still don't trust you. So we have to raise it again. Now, that's what's going to crush this is when people will not buy the Treasury bonds to pay back the, the uh, promises we have made economically with our debt. And the, and the sad part, and I'll end it here, Julian. Uh, the sad part about it is we are putting Rand Paul did a great job on yesterday in front of Congress. We are not only putting it, this debt on people that uh, cannot vote right now that are alive, we're putting on people that aren't even alive yet. And that's the immoral part of all this. And so we actually are trying to teach people not to do this, to take the you and I banking process back to yourself.
0: And so it also sounds like a lot of this is instant gratification. A lot of these strategies and in. So it's like maybe short-term pleasure, but long-term agony a lot of times. And we don't see the repercussions. And I feel like, you know, I'm, probably guilty of this myself in terms of like the financial education because for the most for the most of the part it's just been the mainstream education that I've received. And it, it really doesn't think about like the generational wealth or um how to how to really build wealth. You just think mm-hmm. about income. And so it seems like when I think about privatized banking, it almost seems like I'm taking control of my fi- finances.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Julian, I'll comment on that here just because I think you're extremely insightful in saying that. I think it takes a person stepping back from the mainstream and saying, wait a minute, is this ultimately going where I wanna go? Is it helping me truly be financially free? The answer is no. I mean, unfortunately, most of the people who are doing what the status quo advice is are in a position where they put some money maybe into some kind of maybe 401k or government sponsored qualified plans, which is a retirement plan for the future. The goal is if I get enough money in that account, then at some point I'll be a millionaire and I'll be able to live off the interest and keep the principal so that I'll hopefully be able to give that million dollars to my kids, or I'm going to have to spend it all up and Am I going to be able to have enough money to last me until the end of my life? And to be able to make any of those determinations, you have to make a lot of guesses. You have to guess what are the interest rates going to be from now until the end of my life? When is that end of my life? I mean, you're planning to live a really long time. We're planning to live a really long time. The life insurance companies now go out to age 121 because that's right over what they expect anyone would actually live up until, but if you live that long, good news, they're going to pay you out the full death benefit to yourself while you're living. The point that I'm making though, is that if we follow mainstream, typical thinking, you have to make a lot of assumptions. None of those assumptions are going to actually happen in real life. And you're going to be in a position where you're guessing you're at the mercy of other people and the stock market. You don't have control and you're not going to be able to truly enjoy the fruit of your labor in the way that you want to. So we think high income is going to solve it for me. Unfortunately, there's way too many people who have what's called Parkinson's law, mm-hmm. or you could call it Parkinson's, it's not the real disease, but it's almost like a financial disease where expenses or your your the cost of your life lives you live right up to your means. So your expenses rise to meet your income. And that happens where people at any income level, you think, oh, they're better off than me because now they have the boat and now they're vacationing in Hawaii and Alaska and they're traveling all over the place and their house is bigger than mine. So they must be better off than me. The real problem is most of those people are also in a position where one paycheck, if one paycheck fails, they are in poverty just the same as the next person. So is it Is wealth about building a facade on the outside that looks like I'm doing great or is it really about building an infrastructure inside that gives me peace of mind, that gives me the ability to be in control and that produces income for me in the future? And that's where I think just that tremendous shift is needed away from I'll just do what everyone else is doing, hope it all works out, you know, and throw up your hands and say, well, this is as good as it gets hopefully I'll just get a big, big income or I'll hit it lucky and get good returns. Maybe I'll get $2 million in my account instead of a million. And think, and most people will think of those things as being the answer, but the real answer is saying, how do I have as much of my cash in my control as possible? And instead, how do I turn that cash into cash flowing assets? And how do I have streams of income that continue to replenish themselves? And that is only created with sound money habits that start by pulling away from the mainstream and saying, wait a minute, what else is out there? What are the other options?
0: Yeah. And so as you're pulling away and maybe, and they come upon life the the whole life insurance and they're, they're probably thinking like I did at first, what's the difference between just the regular old term life insurance and this whole life? How is this such a benefit in terms of building wealth throughout the years?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just share super simply. Most people think of term life insurance when they think of insurance. Mm-hmm. And what happens is a term life insurance policy is paying for a death benefit only for a specified length of time. If you say it's a five-year term policy, then it will pay out a death benefit if you die in those five years. If it's a 20-year term policy, it will pay out the death benefit if you die within the 20 years of that term insurance. Here's the thing more than likely, you're not going to die within the timeframe of the term policy because of statistics. If you just look at the likelihood of somebody who's 20 right now dying within the next 20 years, it's relatively low. Life expectancy is past that. And so the life insurance companies will look actuarially at, and Bruce, you can talk even more in depth on this about the the actuaries and how they know who's going to die or that people are going to die, but not necessarily who Mm -hmm. really... (laughs) <laughs> what <laughs> they don't know who, but at the same time, the issue is that with term, you're not getting anything but a death benefit. And if you don't die in that term, it was a pure cost. Now, it did provide you the peace of mind during that time frame,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but say your term policy expired yesterday and you die today, you get nothing financially to give to your heirs and the loved ones that you have in your life. And so, the real benefit of shifting to recognize there's another kind of insurance, is that with whole life insurance, you have a death benefit that lasts your whole life. And you don't just have the death benefit, you're building cash value inside that policy. Like equity in your house, it's this pool of capital, this reserve, this access to money that you can access and use during your lifetime. So it's not just something that pays out a death benefit, it truly benefits you during your life.
0: And so when you mentioned that it's something that you can take out and, and use right now. So I, I guess listeners are probably thinking, okay, so it's just say they're just starting a business right now. Maybe they're an early stage entrepreneur. Is this is this type of strategy just for people who are already wealthy or can you get in early?
1: That is a great, great question. Bruce, do you want to take that? Or do you want me to?
2: No, I'll, I'll take it. First of all, I, I want people to real. I- a lot of people in this industry has said, "I just wish they wouldn't call it life insurance," mm-hmm. because you could do the strategy and say, "Hey, this is just this is just one of the contractual uh, things that you can do with a life insurance contract." Um, because you know, technically, it's death insurance; <laughs> it's not life insurance. They're not insuring they're not ensuring that you're going to live. They're going to ensure that you're going to die. Um, but Julian, when you when you think about what you just asked, is if you're going to start a business or you're going to buy uh, become an investor, whether you buy real estate, you gotta do something with discipline to put that capital away that allows you to purchase it. So it's it's really you can decide. Well, I'm going to take five hundred dollars out of my paycheck every month or $50 out of my paycheck every month and I'm going to store it someplace. I'm going to store it someplace. And then after I get it built up, I'm going and I and it's a good deal, I'm going to redeploy that money somewhere else to get myself cash flow. That's what I'm going to do. And Rachel used a great example with your your home equity. You know, you can do this concept with home equity. You can do this with a savings account. You, you can do it in your mattress or a coffee can. The problem is you don't get the other benefits that you will using whole life insurance. Now, um, so what So just
1: to share what, like to re-communicate just a piece of what you said. The idea that Bruce is saying is no matter who you are and what stage of business, you have a need for capital. And so the person who says, I'm just gonna make the money and I'm going to throw all of it into my business right away and not hold any reserves. That's a really risky position. Mm -hmm. Any person who says I'm going to make the money and invest all of it right away. That's also a really risky position because what if your investment loses value? So what we're saying is there's a middle step between making money and investing that investment might be your business. It might be the real estate. It might be, um, oil. You might be investing in, who knows what you might invest in a friend's business, but between making money and putting that to work somewhere, you need a holding tank. And that's what Bruce is talking about. That holding tank could be anything real estate. I'm sorry. It could be
2: um, Yeah, real estate uh, equity.
1: It, yes. Real estate <laughs> equity. It could be the savings account it could be cash value, life insurance as we're talking about could be just um, a coffee can in your backyard as Bruce mentioned. But the idea is that you need a holding place to store money because if you don't, You're living up to your means all the time and whether you're spending the money or investing the money, none is staying in your hands and in your control. And unfortunately, a lot of people jump straight to that and they say, well, I'm going to spend this and then I'm going to invest. And they never think about the savings element, but saving is a number one wealth building principle because you have to pay yourself first. You have to not spend everything you make and you need to build reserves somewhere. So Bruce, I didn't mean to steal yeah, your so, thunder, but I no, that No, was
2: no, no, that's good. Um, so what happens here is the reason I was bringing that all up is, um, yes, there's some, one of the, one of the uh, downfalls to doing this through a cash valued life insurance policy is there is an insurance aspect of it. So you, you have lack of liquidity. So if you put. 10,000, I'm just going to use some round numbers here, $10,000 from your, you transferred from your savings or checking account or from your mattress to, um, cash value life insurance. Part of that money is going to pay for the, the actual death benefit. Um, you, you could, because we, we have people all the time say, well, why wouldn't I just take the money and go buy a real estate property? Um, the $10,000 just take it out on my, cause I get to use all $10,000 right away. Well, that's true, but now you have, uh, you've lost the opportunity of cost because none of that $10,000 is gonna make you any money in the future and it gives you no other benefits. If you first transfer it to a, a whole life insurance, properly designed whole life insurance contract and properly designed isn't what Rachel and I decide. It's what we decide together sometimes people uh together with the client together with the client exactly Mm -hmm. together with the client sometimes people uh clients decide oh i can give up a little bit more liquidity now so that if interest rates increase in the future i will actually have a greater return internally in my policy there's a big there's a big step right now julian that people say Oh, no, you've got to design these policies only one way. The best way to do it, I've I've found the way, is you actually are going to pull down the insurance so far so that you can have as much as 95% of your money available in 30 days. But what they don't teach the client is that's great for 30 days, but 30 years from now, if interest rates increase, then you're actually thwarting the growth of the policy. Now, if a, if a customer or client wants to take that chance, go ahead, take the chance. But it ought to be taught that you're taking that chance. Instead, what if we said, what if you had access to 75% instead of 95%, but then that actually allows you to actually have the ability to make more money in the future if interest rates go up? Now I'm of the belief, because I've seen you know, decades of interest rates, they, they do this all the time. Well, now they're at almost historic lows for 10 years, right at zero. I frankly think personally they can't go below zero because we're the world cur- currency. I might be wrong, but I certainly think that the more likely they're gonna go up than they are going to go negative. If you believe that, then I believe it's not in your best interest to actually design it a certain way. The other thing I think it says is that you have, if you if you want to just put it in and pull it right back out, you're not thinking long-term. You're thinking short-term, and you said it earlier, Julian, short-term, you know, satisfaction. You know, you. we believe you, you ought to be looking at this long-term. Now, I was mm-hmm. trained by Nelson Nash, who was a forester, and Nelson used to always say, you know, I was trained to think 70 years from now by planting a tree today, what's it going to look like 70 years from now? and we're gonna cut it down and I'm not even gonna be on the face of this earth. Well, we're, we're looking at that long-term wealth, not only for you personally, 70 years from now, but also for, for the next generation so that you can pass that down to the next generation. Now, if we go to a couple of things you said earlier, um, buy term and invest the difference is, is kind of the thing that everybody talks about buy term and invest the difference is actually what you do in in whole life. And people don't talk about this because the, the rates in there are actually term rates. They, the actuaries actually figure out what they need to actually make on your money to pay for the life insurance over that term. The term just happens to be 121 years instead of 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. So, buy term and invest difference is actually what the life insurance company's doing now they're not doing it in speculative environments mm-hmm. most people are saying oh buy the cheapest term insurance and then go buy mutual funds or stocks or bonds you know that are can get you a higher rate of return and we're like that's true because that's an investment in the life insurance we're saying it's not an investment it's a savings platform that's the difference between investing and saving. And, s- and investing has a degree of risk. Savings doesn't. It has guarantees. And the contract has guarantees. Going and to well, to go back to what- yeah, let me just end one thing, Rachel. What I've found in my career as an investment advisor, by the way, and I think this is always important for people to know this, I'm not just an insurance producer. I'm an investment advisor also. But we think, we think this is a foundational, saving money habits is a foundation to to getting your your investment life in order to, is that people don't, when they buy term and invest the in difference because of Parkinson's law, they never invest the in difference. They Because they don't develop habits. Where having a whole life premium, you actually develop that habit. The insurance company helps you develop that habit along the way.
0: It's almost kind of saving ourselves from ourselves a little exactly. bit. So, because exactly. exactly. I'm, I'm fairly impulsive and I like novelty. And I'm sure a lot of other entrepreneurs creators out there, that's the same way. And that's a gift. But sometimes when something like money, it's 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 uh it's harder to develop that discipline. So it sounds like to a certain extent that this is taking that out of there. It's it's help it's saving you from yourself.
1: Well, Julian, no, I, I would agree. Yeah. And I think I mean it's the same thing, like, okay, that hamburger or that cheesecake mm-hmm. looks amazing right now. But if I continue to let that desire for something amazing in my taste buds just for this moment run my life i'm not going to be thinking long term about how do i have the best longevity how do i have the best health how do i take care of this physical body how do i eat as fuel not live to eat how do i be in a position of really mastering my health habits and really it's the same thing in your financial life it's thinking how do i not only get what I want today, but also in the future. And sometimes that requires, instead of just going straight for the thing that you want, requires taking a backward step and thinking, how do I not just get that thing, but how do I secure the rest of my future? And I just want to say one thing about that. If you use a whole life insurance policy, the value of that is that I'm building up cash value inside this policy. Now I can borrow against that. This money in the cash value continues to grow with dividends and interest, even while I take a policy loan against that cash value. What that means is I can use my cash value and put that to work in, say, a real estate property or in my business, where it's earning a return over here in my investment at the same time I'm still earning inside the policy. That is the beautiful thing because now I have two returns at the same time that I'm getting on the same money. So not only does that increase and boost the returns that I'm getting by investing. We have a way that we show all of this in a free guide that anyone can get called the Quick and Easy Privatized Banking Guide for Investors. And this shows that you could invest directly in real estate or you could use life insurance first and then borrow against your capital and invest In the same property at the same time and increase the returns that you got from the investment. That's just one property. But if you look out long term, if you look out 50, 70 years from today, you are creating this pool of capital that continues to grow because after you have recouped all of the cost of putting money into the policy, we call it covering your cost basis. Usually that's somewhere between five and seven years, nine years sometimes in the policy. After that, everything after that is growth what that means is that everything that I've put in is worth more and more and more. And I continue to earn dividends. And if the policy is designed correctly, I'm increasing the death benefit. I'm increasing the cash value by far more than I put in. And I'm creating this thing that works for me like cement. I just heard this the other day and it was amazing. I did not realize that cement is always hardening and the longer it has been laid since it was originally laid, the better it gets and the stronger it gets, even like a hundred years after it was first put in place. And that's what privatized banking does by having these really solid money habits that when you put in place, continue to serve you longer and longer and longer into your future and just get better and better and better with time, not only improving your life, but also your kids and your kids after them and your great grandkids' lives.
0: So it sounds like... um when you're talking about using the privatized banking to um, buy properties, um, it sounds like you're taking a little less risk out. And also you don't have to depend on going to a bank for the rest of the loan, right? Because, so, so are you guaranteed? So for maybe somebody that's skeptic out there, um, are there any catches to like, say I've been pouring into this policy for, I don't know, two years and now I'm ready to get a property. And they want to go take some of the money out. Can they just go do that? Is there any like tricks or anything? I love
1: question. I love the question. And um, go ahead, Bruce.
2: Well, yeah, I think what you have to realize is that um, the difference between going to a bank is you have to prove to the bank you're going to pay them back because they don't want to own the property. Okay, now they use the property as collateral, but they realize the property value can go up and down. And you can actually do something to the property or a renter, a renter can do something to the property to actually destroy its value. So banks don't want to be in real estate business though. They'll, they'll, so that's why they make you put a down payment on it so that they can protect the part of the equity. And, um, they're going to make you qualify from income. Usually it's income outside the real estate property. So, and they're going to make you put up what they call a personal guarantee up. So you're, you're, you're not only going to have the collateral, but they're going to say, even if the collateral goes bad, you're going to guarantee us the difference of this. Well, when you actually save first and you go to an insurance company to do this, they already have the collateral sitting in, in your policy. So all you have to do is call us up or call any good producer up that will help you. We always help the people. We don't have them called directly. We, and, and say, hey, I have $50,000 in my uh, cash value. I want to borrow against that $50,000. What do I need to do? Oh, we'll send you a form. Just sign that you want $50,000. And they will literally, that's all you have to do. You just sign it. You we you fax it in or email it in. And then if you have your um, your savings account or checking account on file, they electronically take it from the insurance company's pool of reserves They put it into your bank account anywhere between, I have always always had to take, because all the insurance regulators tell me to stop saying this, but um, they always say five to seven business days. I sometimes get it in two business days. (laughs) Um, But I always tell my people, think five to seven business days. Unfortunately, some of the companies are actually pushing out more like 13, 15 business days. But when you think about it, to get a loan, that's faster than getting a loan from a bank. Mm -hmm. Um, And and if you have an investment, because I'm once again, you know, I live in this world. If you have to sell a mutual fund, there's you actually have to uh, close out the mutual fund and then get into your bank account. That takes three days minimum. So it's it's a very easy process as long as you capitalize the policy properly. I always say that you really ought to think about capitalizing your policy for three years before you go doing something else. It doesn't mean you won't have access to capital before that, mm-hmm. but you need to prove to yourself and that you have good money habits, you're putting away good capital, and then when you see that, that particular property, then you access the capital through a uh, process of a loan, and it is a loan because I know some people are skeptical about that too. Julian, you're taking a uh, a loan, and in current interest rate environments are five percent. And some people say, "Well, why would I want to do that?" Because I can get money for a rental property now about three and a half percent. Well, that's true, but you don't get the other you don't get the other uh, benefits from the continued growth of the policy, the death benefit, and everything else we can talk about. And the final thing that I will, well, because I think financial education is very poor on this. So let's say you, because I just I just uh, access uh, to, to start another business and I think it's gonna return 20% this business. So I access at 5% capital loan to the insurance company. If it only does 10%, people say, oh, you only made 5%. No, that's 100%. I made 100% on my money because doubling it is 100%. So if you get 15%, that's 200%. And if you get 20%, you've made 300% of your money. We get that all the time. People say, well, why would I want to take a loan at 5% and this return is 8%, I'm only making 3% on my money. No, you're making, you're making 60% on your money, on the volume but that's basic math that people don't understand in their everyday lives. Like so that. what Bruce is
1: talking about is arbitrage mm-hmm. and you want yeah. to always be in a position where you can access the cost of capital at a rate that you know, and you can make more in an investment. Mm-hmm. So that's the position. Then you, you mentioned how easy is this to take the loan as long as you have capital in your cash value. So say as Bruce said, you've got $50,000 of cash value. I can borrow up to the 50,000. That doesn't mean my $50,000 cash value is going to give me access to a million dollars of a loan with the life insurance company. And also a misnomer that sometimes happens is people think, well, my death benefit is a million. My cash value is 50,000. Which one are they going to leverage against? We're talking about the loan that leverages the 50,000. They're not going to say, I'll give you a loan for a million dollars of death benefit. They will give you a loan against the cash value, which means... I have this capital that I own that I'm controlling it's in the life insurance policy. Now I can use that as collateral. And so then paying back the loan, you actually set the terms yourself. You are able to pay it back all at once or you can pay it back monthly at whatever rate you decide. And so the point is it's going to continue to accrue interest as you have that outstanding loan, but say it was for something that you thought wasn't going to be sold until three years from now. And then you're going to have an infusion of cash. You could pay off the loan at that time. So okay. it's very flexible and very easy to access.
0: Okay. And as we start to wind this down, this conversation here, which is great by the way, and I'm going to share all the resources in the show notes so you can go further in depth with them and uh, give them a call. Um, so we hear this. So term can end in five years and maybe our lifestyle changes then and maybe we need more um, term. But life, but this whole life is with us for life. So uh, I'm thinking, what if like your lifestyle changes? So say you're, maybe you're single and you decide to do it, but then all of a sudden you get a family. So can you add to that? Or are you stuck with your policy that you decide on? And the second part of that question is, What if all of a sudden you start making more money in your business and you want to start investing more in that policy so you can then be a little more aggressive in your investment strategies? Is that possible?
1: Yes. So I'll take this one. So every person can get started exactly right now where they're at. We often say do as much whole life insurance as you can, but usually that's not going to get you up to the maximum insurance, the death benefit portion Mm -hmm. that you qualify for. So say somebody is making $100,000 today. The life insurance company is going to take into consideration how old you are, how much you make, and they're going to say, here's the maximum insurance we're going to give you. Chances are you are going to maybe get a portion of that in whole life insurance, and then maybe you want to add on a term policy to get the rest of that coverage. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So then you find yourself in a position where now you want more coverage, or you want to possibly convert a portion of your term insurance over to whole life insurance. The only challenge that can happen is that as we age, we become less and less healthy in most cases, not in your case, Julian, obviously, and nobody who listens to your show. (laughs) Exactly. So everyone who listens to your show is going to become healthier and age backwards as they go through their life. But really what you're looking at is the life insurance company is going to insure you today at your current health. So- If you have some kind of health condition arise between now and the next 20 years, you may not be able to access more life insurance. However, as your income rises, you can access more total death benefit. I personally am using a strategy where we have whole life insurance in our family. And we also have term life insurance policies. And then we plan to convert term life insurance policies over to whole life as our capital changes. And most people are going to see that through their life. Your, your financial life is not static. The one thing is that you always have a need for insurance because it improves not only your life, it also improves the life of the people who come after you. And so that's the reason not to say, well, let's just do only term today and get a new term policy when that one expires. The problem is you normally get a renewable term policy when that happens. And so say the term runs out at 20 years, it becomes exorbitantly more expensive to re-renew that policy. And if you go back and try to get coverage, because you're having to go back through medical underwriting again, it's possible you wouldn't qualify or would have a lesser uh, standard of health, which would then raise the cost of insurance. So I just always say get started with the knowledge and information that you have now. Do as much as you can with the knowledge that you have. Almost everybody says to us, why did I not learn about this sooner? Why didn't I get started before I did? Honestly, I can raise my hand and say the exact same thing. It used to be my husband had a $50,000 term policy when we first got married, and that's what we thought we needed. I didn't think I needed insurance. I wasn't working. I didn't think being a stay-at-home mom, or we were in college at the time, I didn't think I was valuable enough to need life insurance. It just didn't even cross my radar that I should have it. And we weren't thinking about whole life. We weren't thinking about needing to store capital. We weren't thinking about, well, actually, our human life value is closer to $2 million apiece. We need to insure up to that. And most people don't think about that. They think, well, let me just cover the, the house. Let me just pay for the kids' college. And that's a need-based thinking about life insurance. Instead, what you want to think about is how much can I get because it's so valuable and living from that position.
0: I like that and um the last question here and this can be for both of you um i'm going to tweak this question a little bit so normally i ask what are two to three things somebody can do today to start becoming a superhuman entrepreneur but i want to tweak that a little bit and say as we're this will be going out it'll be early 2021 and so i want to ask what are two to three things that someone can do to become a superhuman financial financially savvy entrepreneur
1: oh i like that i,
2: like I would that. say i would say the number one is uh, you you need to pay yourself first. So the this whole idea that you have to be miserable as an entrepreneur entrepreneur for for 3 to 5 years before you ever turn a profit is um it's just a fallacy because what it what it's saying is you haven't actually set up your business properly so that you do turn a profit. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times like covid right now. A lot of businesses are having difficult times turning a profit in this year, but the good ones would have put capital back for those emergencies. Um, so paying yourself first, setting your, don't expand your business beyond your needs, just like you shouldn't expand your Parkinson's, your personal economy beyond your needs. So the business should be the, the same way. Um, I don't know if this is related, but um, you know, I don't have any children. My wife and I have been married for 34 years and we've never had children. My wife and I, we were talking about this the other day. We were looking at our, our financial statements. We contribute about the same to our economies, our personal economies. So not one isn't more valuable to the other as far as for, for protection wise. So a lot of people look at us and like, why do you have life insurance? You know, Because your wife is makes a great living if you die, it's no big deal. And if she dies, it's no big deal because you guys both make great livings and you don't have any children. That's because people have to reassess. I think Julian, I'm sorry to say in 2021, life insurance isn't for the death benefit. It's a financial tool to make everything else better in your life. Now, if it just so happens, if you have other people to protect, like younger people, it's a lot better. And if you're looking for generational planning. It's a lot better. Now, there's a lot of other things you can do for your generational plan, like teach them about the finances, Mm -hmm. um, how you actually grow a business, how you do a business, how you do your basics. Um, So those two things is what I think uh, people should be looking at in 2021. Rachel, I'm sure you have something you could add to that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely second everything that you said there. And I think the third one I would just add is be open-minded. I think it's really challenging in this world to think that we know everything and yet we all can fall prey to that trap of feeling like I've arrived, I know what I need to know in this area of my life and really the most, the people who go the furthest in life are the ones that admit that they don't know everything and they're lifelong learners and that's who we've chosen to be And anytime that I have not chosen to be a lifelong learner, I have lifelong learners around me, including my kids who will remind me that I don't know everything and a husband who's very good at reminding me that we're on this growth journey together. And as long as we're growing, that means we're gaining new information. We're getting better and we're continuing to make better and better decisions. And that means that I'm able to look longer range and build long-term wealth, not just have something that feels good right now or makes me happy tomorrow. So be long range thinking and really be a lifelong learner.
0: I love those last points. And this has been an awesome conversation. Very detailed and but very beneficial. And where can where can listeners find out more um, to get connected with you all?
1: Everything is accessed at themoneyadvantage.com. That's T-H-E. Some people think I'm saying a different word. So themoneyadvantage.com. Um, and so you can get access to our podcast that we have there. If you just want to dig in and find out more information, we have a free guide I mentioned, the, the quick and easy privatized banking guide for investors We have a privatized banking course. You can connect with us on our calendar right there and book a conversation. This is for people who say, I'm really interested in figuring out how do I implement this privatized banking concept for myself, or how do I strategically coordinate my entire financial life so that it actually accomplishes my goals and doesn't work against itself and cause me to go backwards. So people who want privatized banking cash flow strategies to keep more of the money they make alternative investments, and things that are going to help propel them towards time and money freedom. That is what we do here at The Money Advantage. And again, you can find all of that at themoneyadvantage.com.
0: Awesome to hear. Rachel, Bruce, thank you so much for joining me and the listeners out there. Stay awesome, be limitless, go be superhuman. Peace.